Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everybody the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and freedom that we have to gather today to study your word, to be refreshed by the teaching of your word as it uh, orients our thinking to reality, helps us to understand you and all that you have revealed to us and all that you have done for us and provided for us in salvation and for our spiritual life. Father, we thank you for your grace in allowing us to live in a nation that has such incredible freedoms Father, we pray that you would continue to watch over this nation to protect our president, to protect the key leaders in this nation, to watch over them, to continue to uh, give our security forces the opportunities to break up any conspiracies against, against this country. We know that no matter how great our technology might be, no matter how intense our security might be, our security is truly in your hands. And, Father, we pray that you would continue to protect this nation, that we might be able to uh, send out missionaries, those who would take the gospel and your word to other countries, and that we would continue to be a bulwark for the nation Israel. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to think through the things that we're studying this morning to come to a greater understanding of what you've revealed in your word and how it affects our everyday relationships. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning I want to wrap up what we have been teaching, what we've been learning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 deals with public worship, problems in public worship in Corinth. There are two sections to 1 Corinthians 11. The first section began in verse 2 and extends down through verse uh, 16. And up through last week we have exegeted our way through those passages and we have come to an understanding of the role distinctions between men and women. Verse 17 shifts. It, there is a shift in tone. There is a shift in subject to the Lord's table. But before we move on to that subject, I want to wrap up this study on uh, head coverings by going back to the foundational issue which is that that is revealed in verse 3. One area that I did not cover when we did that, I thought it would be wise to go back and recap this to understand what the real issue is. The issue is not, as we said, wearing a literal covering, but the issue is what is symbolized by that covering, and this is indicated by two key verses in this passage. Verse 3 is one. And the other is found, let me see, the other is found in verse 10, in the last clause of verse 10. Verse 3 reads, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. The issue in verse 3 is authority. This is indicated by the use of the word kephale, which is translated head, has, the word kephale has two meanings. The first is the literal head that sits on top of your neck most mornings when we get out of bed. And the other meaning, the metaphorical meaning, is 
which is derived from that because it is your brain located in your head which directs and controls all the all the actions of your body. The head came to mean authority, the or, or leadership. So the authority over every man is Christ. The authority over woman is man, and the authority over Christ is God. That indicates that the issue in this passage is authority. This is what is further emphasized in verse 10. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, there's a tremendous amount of speculation in the literature about what that last clause means, but what it refers to is the fact that authority is the foundational issue and the fundamental issue in the angelic conflict. It was the angel Lucifer, the cherub, the bright and morning star, the highest of all the angels, who rebelled against God in eternity past and led a revolt against him among the angels. The issue was authority. In the Garden of Eden, the issue once again was authority, whether or not Adam and Isha would obey God and would follow his authority even in the midst of the temptation that was offered. So, in sanctification and in in salvation and in sanctification, the issue is recovering our orientation to the authority of God in every area of life. And this involves all areas of social life, including marriage, that there are role distinctions. Now, this is not something that is introduced after the fall. The real problem here has to do with understanding this relationship between Christ as the second person of the Trinity and God the Father that there is clearly an authority relationship here indicated by the terminology of headship and that God is the authority over Christ. Now, we know from every passage in the Scripture that teaches about the deity of Christ, this is not some doctrine that is simply uh, foisted on the church or developed uh, later on at the Council of Nicaea, but throughout the Scriptures, Jesus Christ is is Uh, expresses undiminished deity. He is full deity. There is no inequality between Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and God the Father, the the, um, first person of the Trinity. Now, when we come to this passage, though, in 1 Corinthians 11.3, the issue that is often raised is, well, does this headship of Christ, let's put a timeline up here on the overhead, This point here represents the beginning of creation. Does that headship begin in time at the incarnation when the second person of the Trinity takes on true humanity? Does it begin at some time in eternity past in relationship to the plan of salvation? Or does it relate to, in some way, Jesus Christ's role as the revealer of the Godhead, or, excuse me, as the one who executes the plan of the Godhead in terms of human history. Now, these are three options that are given. If any of these three options are taken, then Christ's authority is something that is secondary. It is not related to the very nature of of the Godhead. If Christ is under the headship or the authority of God from eternity past, and as the second person of the Trinity, if Jesus Christ is always and forever under the authority of God the Father, this doesn't mean he is less than God the Father, less equal, but that authority is something that is inherent in the very structure of reality because it is inherent in the Godhead itself. Now, these are two important distinctions that are made. If you take the option I explained at first, that somehow the the headship of God the Father over Christ is related to either the, or is limited to the plan of salvation or human history or the incarnation, then it has serious implications because then the argument would be, 
that, well, once the believer is truly sanctified, then this aspect of, uh, of authority relationships and the, uh, the authority of the male over the female becomes secondary, and it's used to rationalize away the meaning of these passages. So what we have to do is look at the Scripture to understand this relationship between the second person of the Trinity and the first person of the Trinity to see if this authority relationship is eternal or if it's something that is simply related to the plan of God. And this relates to the meaning of the term Son of God. This is directly related to an, an issue, a theological issue, in terms of the meaning of the term Son of God. Now, there are two options that are given to the meaning of the term Son of God. One is that this is a title that is related in some sense to his incarnation. It may be applied to the birth of Christ. It may be applied to his, the inauguration of his of his ministry under John the Baptist when God announced, this is my son uh, with whom I am well pleased. Uh, that same announcement is made again at the Mount of Transfiguration. It is also applied to the resurrection. And then, uh, fifth, it is applied in the future to his conquest of the kingdoms. Now, this is one of the important things we have to realize. The term Son of God is applied at each of these points in the New Testament to the conquest. When he comes back as the reigning King of kings and Lord of lords, it is applied in Hebrews uh, chapter 1 to the resurrection of Christ. It is announced by God the Father at the Mount of Transfiguration when he is transformed into his divine glory that flashes forth and it's witnessed by Peter, James, and John. At his inauguration with John the Baptist, again, God the Father announces, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Is that the starting point? Or when uh, Gabriel announces to Mary that she is going to give birth to a Savior and he will be called uh, the Son of the Most High. Are these the starting points of his being the Son of God, or is he, has he always been the Son of God? In other words, does he become the Son of God, or has he always been the Son of God? One important thing to note, if he becomes the Son of God, if, if there was a time when he wasn't the Son, he was just the second person of the Trinity, then there was a time when he wasn't the Father. Are these terms inherent or are they simply functional descriptions that come about in history? If they are inherent, then what they demonstrate is that the term Son of God shows that Jesus Christ is eternally in an authority relationship under God the Father. And the point is that to show that in the Trinity itself, you have perfect equality of relationship Father, the Father is equal to the Son. The Son is equal to the Holy Spirit. There is no di di difference. There's no distinct distinction. The Son is not superior to the Holy Spirit. The Father is not superior to the to the Son. But there is an authority relationship, and each has distinct roles to fulfill. Not simply in relationship to human history, but because of the very nature of the Trinity itself. So let's break this down and start with the first point. The first point analyzes the phraseology son of. What does it mean son of? See, when we think, especially in terms of English, that so-and-so is the son of someone, we think in terms of offspring. We think in terms of physical generation and, and something that is finite. Son of, we think of, meaning uh, offspring or descendant of, and that's true. That's inherent in the in the Old Testament uh, Hebrew terminology as well as in the Greek terminology. But this phrase also has the meaning of the order of, the order of. It doesn't simply imply, or it's not the, the, the meaning is not limited to physical offspring. For example... In 1 Corinthians 20, verse 35, the phrase, sons of the prophets. Uh, now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to another by the word of the Lord, this term, sons of the prophet, is not talking about the fact that this, this
as I said earlier, it was one of those mornings. I'll turn the projector on. It'll take a minute to warm up. First Kings 20:35. Now a certain man of the sons of the prophet said to another, This man is not talking about the fact that he just happened, his father is a prophet. It is talking about something that is, that he is in the order of the prophets. He belongs to the prophets. It is saying something about the organization to which he is a part. He is of the order of the prophets. This same type of phrase, the same type of phrase is used again in Nehemiah 12:28. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around around Jerusalem and from the villages of the uh, Netophathites. So the sons of the singers is not talking about men whose fathers were singers. It is talking about a designated group. They were of the order of the singers. So when we look at the phrase son of God, it has this idea, son of God meant the order of God or in the order of deity, which indicates a full, I mean a claim to full undiminished deity. Furthermore, in Jewish usage, the term son of indicates equality and identity of essence or nature. For example, if you were in the sons of the prophets, they were all prophets. They all shared of the same uh, office, the same abilities. If you were sons of the singers, they all shared equally in their position as singers and the professional musicians in the temple worship. So in Jewish usage, the term son of indicates equality and identity of essence or nature and did not imply essential or ontological subordination or inequality. There's that big word again, ontological. That means in terms of their basic being, the basic essence. That's why I've worded it this way. This is very technical terminology. In the there, there is uh, the term indicates equality of essence, and does not imply essential. That is that there is subordination or inequality in the essence. It does not imply a sense, essential difference or an ontological subordination or inequality. So son of doesn't mean less than. It doesn't mean inferior to. It doesn't mean finite as opposed to infinite. It indicates something, uh, someone who is in a certain class or a certain order. Furthermore, uh, let, or furthermore, you have the term son of indicates the essential character of someone. The term son of indicates the essential character of someone, and this was a standard Hebrew idiom. And this is found in a number of different terms that we see in the Scripture. For example, in Acts 4.36, you have Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. The son of encouragement. And that says something about his character. He was someone who was very encouraging in the life of people. And if you go through the New Testament, you see the number of, of men who are influenced and encouraged by Barnabas. Remember, Saul was originally a persecutor of Christians, and after he was first saved, and he was very enthusiastic, like most new believers are, but he didn't really know a whole lot yet, he went down to Jerusalem, and there were some problems there, and he, after that, he left and went up to Tarsus, went back to, to his uh, tent-making business, and went into obscurity for a period of about 14 years, and it was during that time that uh, he is growing and maturing as a believer, and it was also, I believe, during that time that God the Holy Spirit was making clear to him many of the doctrines that he later taught in his epistles. And when it was time to send out some missionaries from the from the church in Antioch, it is Barnabas who goes and finds Saul of Tarsus, who is now known as Paul, and brings him in despite the fact that there may have been some opposition to him because of his former career. So we know that Barnabas was very grace-oriented, and so he is called the son of encouragement. Furthermore, James and John uh, James and John were called the sons of thunder. The two sons of Zebedee were referred to as the sons of thunder because that characterized 
their volatile, strong nature. They had thunderous personalities. They weren't wallflowers. They weren't quiet. They weren't reserved. They were not perhaps as impetuous as Peter was, but they were nevertheless known for their strong uh, natures. Now, that's not necessarily the impression you get when you read John or the epistles of John. I mean, this comes across as a man who's radically changed, and that's a result of the impact of sanctification. Furthermore, you have phrases like, as in Luke 10:6, "If a man of peace is there, his, uh, your peace will rest upon him." And literally, this is a son of peace is there. Your peace will rest upon him, but if not, it will return to you. And so that phrase, "son of peace," indicates someone who is characterized by peace. Then in Galatians 3.7, we have the phrase, sons of Abraham. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. This is not talking about physical descendants of Abraham, for that would include both Arabs and Jews, both in terms of unsaved Arabs and Jews. But this is talking about those who were the genuine spiritual uh, sons of Abraham, and they are characterized by Abraham's faith. So the term sons of Abraham is not talking about physical lineage, but it is talking about those who are characterized by the same kind of faith that Abraham had. Ephesians 2.2 uses this same idiom, in which, talking about the fact that we were born dead in our trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This is talking about all unbelievers. They are characterized by disobedience because they are unregenerate. They have a sin nature, and they operate on that sin nature, which is always oriented towards independence and rebelliousness. So the term sons of disobedience indicates those who are characterized by disobedience to God. Then we have the phrase in John seventeen twelve, Jesus is praying to God the Father and says, While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. That's a reference to Judas Iscariot. Here he is called the son of Perdition, and that word relates to the fact that he is unsaved. He is not a believer. It's one of the strongest indications that Judas Iscariot was not a believer. The Greek word for perdition is the same word that is used of those who perish in John 3.16, and it's used again in 2 Thessalonians 2.3 to describe the Antichrist. He is called the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. And that is the same word, apolusis, that is used in John 3.16 as well as in John 17.12. So it indicates someone who is characterized by destruction or the fact that he is perishing, he is lost and unsaved. So the term does not mean descendant, it does not mean generation, It has to do with the essential character or classification of an individual. Well, that brings us down to the fourth point. The fourth point is that the the phrase Son of God had a strong meaning of kingship. If you look at this phrase, it doesn't just pop up in the New Testament. It has a history behind it from the Old Testament, and so we have to understand the Old Testament context if we are going to understand this term. Son of God related to royalty. It relates, as we'll see, to divine royalty, to divine royalty. So it's not simply a phrase that indicates a deity of Christ, but it also indicates his royalty. The first time we run across the the phrase son of in, in terms of the son of David is in the passage related to the son uh, or related to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 14 and following 2 Samuel 7 uh, 14 and following uh, there God is speaking to David in relationship to the to his heir that will be the greater known later as the greater son of David 
I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When, uh, when he commits iniquity, this, of course, is referring to Solomon, not to the future Messiah. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. And then in verse 15, it goes on to move to the greater son of David. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So sonship here begins to take on a technical sense of royalty in relationship to the the descendant of the king and the, the, the dynasty of David. This idea of sonship then and royalty, kingship, is then behind the imagery of the son in Psalm 2. In Psalm 2. Now you may want to look over to Psalm 2 in your Bibles because we're going to take a few minutes to go through some of the key Issues in this book. This is the closest we'll get to some exegesis in this in this passage this morning. But I want to cover the the idea here. This is a crucial passage on the sonship of Christ, specifically be focusing on verse seven. But before we get there, we have to look at the context. Psalm two is a prophecy about the conquest of the messianic king over all the nations. It's a prophetic psalm, and it is a messianic psalm that is not fulfilled until Jesus Christ returns at the second coming to establish himself as the king of kings and lord of lords over all the nations. So it begins, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? This is a characterization of what is taking place at the end of the tribulation. The earth is in rebellion against God. The nations have uh, are in revolt against God, and they are experiencing incredible judgments of God against the nations. And they continue, despite all of these horrific disciplinary actions by God upon Upon the earth, the people continue to raise their fist in rebellion against God. Psalm 2.2 The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So here is a picture of the two persons of the Trinity. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh. This is indicated by the uh, uppercase Lord here where we see this is a uh, translation of the Hebrew tetragrammaton Yahweh and against his anointed. So you see the two persons here in the term anointed is the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is the Hebrew for Christos, the Greek Christos, which is our word Christ. So the kings take up their stand against Yahweh and against his Christ. This is what they say. This is their arrogance in verse 3. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. That's the essence of sin, is vocalizing rebellion against God. God's mandates are considered to be restrictions like prison chains. So they want to throw off the authority of God. The response from heaven is that they, he who sits in the heavens laughs at them. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger. Terrify them in his fury. Verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And even though it is a past tense verb, it is what's called a prophetic perfect because it is so certain to take place that it is spoken of in as having already occurred. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So the picture here, as starting in verse 6, is a picture of the coronation of the king. Now what we have in the New Testament is the arrival of the king, the birth of the king, the announcement of the king, and the offer of the king during the first advent. When Jesus Christ came, he offered the kingdom. He did not inaugurate the kingdom. He offered the kingdom. It's very important to make those distinctions because if he inaugurated the kingdom in any way, shape, or form, then that would put us in the kingdom today 
and in some way, and that is um, parallel to much teaching in amillennialism, but it is being picked up now by some dispensationalists, and that is known as progressive dispensationalism. And in their uh, hermeneutic, which is not a literal hermeneutic at all, but it's called a complementary hermeneutic, and in their hermeneutic, they're trying to say that Jesus today is sitting on the throne of David. But Psalm 2 is talking about the fact that Jesus doesn't take this throne until the end of the tribulation. He is not now at, on the throne of David. He is on, at the right hand of God the Father where he is working out his plan in relationship to the church. Now, this is a completely different study in relationship to the, the purpose and the objectives of the, what is called the session of Christ. We talk about his ascension and session. That is, session relates to his being seated at the right hand of God the Father, and it is during the church age that he is building his, the body of Christ and developing the bride of Christ to rule and reign with him when he comes in his kingdom. But that is all future. So Jesus did not inaugurate the kingdom. He offered it. It was rejected and postponed. And this is when he is uh, coronated or crowned when you have the uh, establishment of the kingdom at the end of the tribulation period. So verse 7, this is the announcement. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. So the one speaking here is different from the one speaking in verse 6. In verse 6 we read, But as for me, who is the me? This is God the Father speaking. He is the one who installs my king. It's not the king that's speaking in verse 6. It is someone different. It is a different personality. As for me, I have installed my king. Who is it who installs Jesus Christ as the king of Israel? It is God the Father. Now, in verse 7, we have a quote. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. Remember, we saw back in verse 2 that there are two personalities here, Yahweh and Mashiach. Verse 7 is a quote from Mashiach. I will tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. So the decree in verse 7 is a statement of, from Yahweh directed to the Messiah, directed to Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And the content of that decree is, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. So we have to do a couple of detailed studies here to understand what is happening in this particular verse. And the first thing we have to do is look at the meaning of the word begotten. What does it mean to have begotten? Well, the New Testament word that is used here is more instructive than the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is some form of Yahid or Yahad, which is the Y-A-H-A-D, which has to do with giving birth. It's a normal word that is used so many times when you read through passages like Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so it means to give birth to. The Hebrew, I mean, the Greek word is monogenes, M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-S. It is a compound word. <clears throat> the prefix mono has to do with only, and genes has to do with uh, generation, or it can have to do with Kind. For example, we have, we use the word genus when we talk about a certain category of species. And that's the same root here, and etymological root, and it has the idea of one of a kind, something that is unique. It is not talking about 
birth per se. That is a secondary idea. So when you read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his unique son. It's a one-of-a-kind son, not uniquely born son, because as we'll see in this study, the term only begotten has to do with the fact that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is said to be eternally begotten. This is how it was stated so precisely in the early creeds of the church, in the Nicene Creed, the uh, Creed, of, uh, the Council of Ephesus, and uh, finally in the Chalcedonian Creed. Well, let's look at how this word is used in the New Testament. The first point, the term in the New Testament, the term monogenes, is used nine times in the New Testament. It's used of the widow's son, her only son, in Luke 7, verse 2. It is used of Jairus' only daughter in Luke 8:42. It's used in reference to another only child in Luke 9:38. And as Hebrews 11:14, it is used to refer to Isaac as the unique son of Abraham, the only son of Abraham. And then five times it refers to Jesus Christ in John 1, 14 and 18, John 3, 16 and 18, and in 1 John 4, 9. Those five times it refers to Jesus Christ. Now, what exactly does this, does this mean? Well, the second point goes back to look at the Old Testament and how the term monogenes is used in the Old Testament and there it is used nine times in translating some form of that Hebrew word, Yahid. And each time it refers to an, to an only child, and twice it refers to Isaac as the unique son of Abraham. Now we have to remember what you say, well, what about Ishmael? What about uh, his other sons? Well, under ancient Near Eastern law, the son born of a slave woman did not have the same rights as the son of the wife. So there is a distinction there. Well, the third, third point here is the conclusion from an analysis of the usage of this word is that the expression only begotten refers not only to the only child, but it also refers to the status of the child. We see that with, especially with Isaac. It refers to the status of the child, that this is a unique, one-of-a-kind uh, <coughs> child. So only begotten does not have the idea of only generated. Remember, Isaac, I mean Abraham had other children through Keturah and, and a couple of other wives. So it has the idea of unique or one-of-a-kind, special. And so when we talk about Jesus as the only begotten of God, we're not talking about his physical birth or incarnation. We're talking about his unique relationship to God the Father that goes throughout all of eternity. Now, when we come to uh, Psalm 2-7, we have the Hebrew word yalad, which is a in, in, in the cow stem, today I have begotten thee. Excuse me, I can't read my own writing. I put up there, yah. Yahed, or this is a trouble with computer programs. They don't transliterate things well. This should be Yalad, not Yahid, not Yahad, and Y-A-L-A-D, Yalad. So here you have the form of uh, Yalad in this, the um, Hebrew of Psalm 2-7. Excuse me, I'll put it up. Now you can see it better. Yalad. Today I have begotten thee. Now, when you have this verb in in the Hebrew, it's one of those words that has a a the morphology of the cow of the of the form of this word could either be in the cow stem or in the hyphial stem. Now, this is what gets a little technical, but cow stem basically indicates a declarative statement. The hyphial stem indicates a causative statement. Now, they're not necessarily uh, in contrast to one another because in many places the hyphial stem also has a declarative meaning. It just 
packs those two together. It's a declarative and causative statement together. What that means is that Psalm 2-7 should take Yalad. Yalad should be understood there as a hiphil and not a cal, and that would mean that it would be translated, Today I have declared thy sonship, thy uniqueness. And it's not a reference to the time which he has begun. For example, one of the problems we would have here is in the statement, Today I have begotten thee, we'll see that today indicates the time of the coronation. Now, that is not when Jesus Christ was begotten of the Father. He is also declared to be begotten of the Father, as I said earlier, at the Mount of Transfiguration, at his inauguration, and also at his birth. So it can't mean that at this particular time, when this is announced at the end of the tribulation, that that is when he is begotten. So it is better to understand this as a hiphil. Today I have declared your sonship. And that makes better sense in the passage for six reasons. First of all, there is a synonymous parallelism in the text itself, a synonymous parallelism. And in Hebrew poetry, they don't rhyme words, they rhyme ideas. So that you have, if you have two stanzas in a verse, the first stanza, it, it, it may be mirrored but with, uh, in the second stanza, and that's called synonymous parallelism. If the two stanzas stand opposite of each other, that's called uh, antonymic parallelism. Sometimes the second line expands the first line, and that's called emblematic parallelism. And here we have uh, synonymous parallelism, and the first line talks about the decree of the Lord, and the second line indicates the content of that decree and it's parallel thou art my son is parallel to today I have begotten thee so the second clause there today I have begotten thee is parallel to thou art my son the declaration furthermore this is seen in context in verse 6 as referring to the coronation and installation of the king on Mount Zion so the context indicates the parallelism within verse 7 and the con- context with verse 6 indicates the idea that this is a declaration of his sonship. Second, the decree here is not a reference back to the eternal decree of God in eternity past, but to the declaration in context. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. What is his decree? Today I have begotten thee. Today I have declared the sonship. That is the content of the decree. This is not a reference to the divine decree. Third, this day, today, refers to the day of the declaration and coronation of the king, which does not occur until the second coming. Fourth, this verse is quoted in the New Testament in Acts 13, 33-34, in reference to the resurrection of Christ. Now that does not mean that is when he is crowned, but it is when he is resurrected, it is declared at that time provisionally that he is the king. That is when he has victory over death. It's not talking about the incarnation in Acts 13, but the resurrection. So verse 8 and then we go on, we look at verse 8. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Verse 8 suggests that the focus here is on the inheritance of the Son. First, there had to be a formal recognition of sonship before the heir could be announced. So verse, verse, verse 6 and 7 indicates the formal recognition of the Son. Verse 8 then moves on to announcing his inheritance. And this is not fulfilled. This taking of the inheritance is not fulfilled until Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5, you have this scene in heaven 
where everyone is weeping, even, and they're, they're crying out in despair because there's this scroll that has seven, seven seals on it, and they can't find anyone who is worthy to break the seals and open up the scroll. And the scroll is the title deed to planet Earth. The scroll is the, the title deed to reign over all of the kingdoms of the earth. Remember when we studied Daniel chapter 7, we saw the picture of all of those beasts. There was the, um, uh, there, there was the, the lion and the, and the leopard and the bear. And all the, these images of an animal, and then there's that great, horrible, almost indescribable beast that represents the, the kingdom of the, of the future Antichrist. And, and all the kingdoms of man are represented by beasts. And then we're told, then came one as the son of man. And so he is referred to uniquely as as a man, this, this human who is able to come and then rule over all the nations of mankind. That is his inheritance. So Christ is, takes that and accepts the title deed to rule over the kingdoms of the world in Revelation chapter 5. So when we look at this phraseology today, uh, I have begotten thee, it is the day the Son receives the crown. In the ancient Near East, it was standard operating procedure that the the king, even if he wasn't the physical descendant of the of the previous king, that on the day of his coronation he is adopted by the previous king. And in some cases where the king was seen as a descendant of the gods, then the gods would adopt the human king on the day of his coronation. So here we have the sonship related to the coronation of the king, and that this does not refer to the beginning of the incarnation, but to the time when he comes in his glory to subdue the earth. So the term son, the conclusion from all this, is that the word son comes out of a background in the ancient Near East of the heir to the king ruling and subduing the earth. Now as time went by after the... Davidic covenant, it becomes clear that Solomon did not match up. Rehoboam certainly failed. Joash, Asa, all of the kings of Israel failed to measure up to the promise of God. And so there was no ideal king who could fill these shoes. So two psalms were written that showed this. And I just want to highlight a couple of verses from these psalms. Psalm 45 looks forward to the ideal king. Thy throne, O God, is forever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of thy kingdom. And this verse is picked up in Hebrews chapter 1 by the writer of Hebrews to indicate the eternality of the throne of the Messiah. But it, remember, it is not, it does not begin until the second coming. Then in Psalm 45, verse 7, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God thy God has anointed thee with the oil of joy above thy fellows. So the king that is coming is no longer viewed as simply a human king, but is addressed in verse 6 as God and referred to in verse uh, 7 as in a unique relationship to that God. So the question is, who can be the ideal perfect king? All of the human descendants of David have failed. Only God himself could fulfill this role of being the perfect king. Now, how does this work itself out? Well, in Psalm 110.1, we see the statement, The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, so in this particular passage that David is writing, we have to ask the question, did David have any higher human authority? No. The only higher authority than David was God. So when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, David's Lord, the Adonai there, has to refer to someone who is complete deity. This is a reference to that mysterious king figure we talked about in Psalm 45, who is also seen as being fully God. This is the one who is told in Psalm 45, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the point I am making here, 
cutting through a lot of detailed exegesis, is that by looking at Psalm 45 and Psalm 110, what we see is that these two themes of sonship and kingship are interrelated. When Jesus comes into history at the incarnation and he picks up the term son of God, it is not a term that just sort of, that's just invented at that time to indicate his, uh, his incarnation and the beginning of his life. It is a term that is loaded with meaning. He is saying, I am a king, I am David's son, and I am deity because of this background from the Old Testament is it is a reference to the fact that he is the son of David, but is it is an, a title that relates to his deity and his eternality. He is claiming to be God's ordained king over all over all of the creation. So, point number four: Son of God has a strong meaning for kingship. And it is specifically tied to the Messianic king, the son of David. So we see this connection between the term son of God and son of David. And then when we connect it in Daniel 7, we see that it also is tied to the phrase son of man. Now, son of man is going to emphasize his humanity. Son of David indicates his royalty in relationship to Israel. And Son of God indicates his eternal deity. So these three titles are interrelated and interconnected and all refer to the same person. So now the question, when did Jesus become the Son of God? As we, as I pointed out earlier, uh, the, the options are that most people go to are either the incarnation, the public presentation by John the Baptist at his ascension, or later at his coronation. However, as we have seen, the term Son of God relates to Christ's essential deity and not to generation. It has to do with an eternal title, that he is for all eternity the Son of God. There never was a time when the second person of the Trinity is not the Son of God. For example, we are told that that the Father sent him. Was the Father the Father when he sent him? Of course he was. Well, when he sent him, it was before the Incarnation. So if the Father was the Father before the Incarnation, then the Son was the Son before the Incarnation. So Jesus Christ then is said to be the eternal Son of God, in passages such as Galatians 4.4, 4, Romans 8.3, and Colossians 1.13-17. The eternal Son of God becomes the Son of God in relationship to His humanity at the Incarnation. It is when He is born of the Virgin Mary, the virgin birth, that he becomes the Son of God in relationship to his humanity, but the term Son of God relates primarily to deity, not humanity. Son of man indicates his humanity. So the Son of God takes on full humanity, and the term Son of man was his Jesus' favorite title for referring to himself. It had certainly had Old Testament implications as well from Daniel chapter 7 and some other passages but he indicates his full humanity. Now, the phrase then, Son of Man, indicates, uh, indicates his role in salvation. But the term Son of God describes his relationship to the Father throughout all eternity. So, throughout all of eternity, the Son of God is fully God. So the Son of God is equal to God the Father. Yet, the Son of God is also subordinate to God the Father in terms of the authority structure within the Trinity. So from all of this, we see that Jesus' sonship is eternal. He didn't become the Son at the baptism 
because when he was in the temple at age 12, he was already about his father's business. So he couldn't wait till 10 years later or 17 years later before he was uh, became the son. It doesn't occur at the resurrection or ascension for the same reason. When we come to Hebrews 1.3, it clearly relates to his sonship in relationship to the Davidic covenant and his coronation as David's son. So what's the conclusion? The conclusion is that when we come to 1 Corinthians 11.3 and we see that the head of Christ is God, that tells us that throughout all of eternity there is an authority structure within within the Trinity, and God the Son is under the authority of God the Father. This means that authority is not something that God placed into human society in order to deal with problems from sin. That authority is something that was present before the fall. There was an inherent authority structure established in God's creative order when he created the man first, and then he creates the woman from the side of man. There is, And this is reflected even in the eternal relationship of the Godhead. So one of the problems that people have with authority is they think, that, well, authority itself is wrong because it's abused. The reason it's abused and distorted is because those who are in authority are fallen creatures and sinners. But whenever we violate authority, even when that authority is wrong or we think it's wrong, it is a victory for Satan in the angelic conflict. This is why the Scriptures make the point both here in in chapter 11 and also in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and in 1 Peter chapter 2 that the woman is to be in authority or to recognize the authority of her husband because of the angels, because this has a testimony in the angelic conflict. It doesn't mean that the woman is less capable doesn't mean that the woman is less talented, less intelligent, less able than the man at all. It has nothing to do with equality or essence. It has to do with role distinction, and it doesn't have to do with essence or their basic being. Now, one of the most important applications from this is for those of you who are not married. If you are not married, you have to make very sure that when you decide to get married that this is someone to whom you want to surrender your authority because this person you're going to marry is the person who you're saying you are now going to be the authority in my life that I am going to follow and that I am going to obey. And you better make sure that that person, that man that you marry, is a man who has the integrity and the honor and the spiritual maturity or at least is spiritually growing so that he is someone worthy of surrendering your freedom to because that is exactly what the woman does in marriage is surrenders her freedom to the authority of the man. Now next time we'll come back and we'll deal with the next major problem in Corinth and we'll begin to develop uh, more of an understanding of the Lord's table uh, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to understand that that you have decreed all things and that you are the one who has set up the structures of human society. These are not things that were just invented as a result of sin, but especially in terms of marriage and family and the authority structures in marriage and family. These were established before sin ever cast its shadow on the human race. Father, we thank you that from eternity past you had a plan to resolve the sin problem, that you sent your Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son, who came to the earth to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, that we might have salvation, not because of who we are or what we have done, but that we are saved because of his work on the cross. He paid the penalty in full, and all that we must do is to believe that he did that, to trust in him, to rely on him exclusively, that we are not relying upon Jesus Christ and 
certain religious activities. We're not relying on Jesus Christ and church attendance. We're not relying on Jesus Christ and our own morality, but on Jesus Christ alone. Scripture says, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny and have confidence in your salvation. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, before everybody gets up and runs out, have a little announcement. We're going to have a small celebration downstairs for Nick Jarris, who graduated from high school. Nick's up there in the sound booth, so he can't stand up and be seen by everybody now. But uh, Nick's been helping out a lot, and he's going to be going to, um, what is it, Central uh, Connecticut University in uh, New Britain starting in the fall, and hopefully he'll still be around on weekends to help with the sound. So go downstairs, congratulate Nick. He's also going to Kiev this summer, so he's going to get a good cross-cultural education there.